Well, as I mentioned, it is good to be here, and it is beautiful and wonderful to be able to look at God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. And I would like us to just think for a moment, before we read the Word and pray, I would like for us to just think for a moment about a master carpenter. How does a person become a master carpenter, or quite frankly, a master at any trade? Is it by sitting in a lecture hall and hearing about all the philosophical ideas and thoughts behind the theory, like the theory of wood and the theory of woodworking? Is that the way we learn to be a master? No. Master, I'm sure there's a part of that. You do need to learn some things. But master carpenters, masters at anything, quite frankly, don't become this way except through apprenticeship and practice. They learn through one-on-one teaching and, quite frankly, one-on-one discipleship. Jesus' disciples, how did they learn? Well, they spent three years with him. It's the same way with every follower of Jesus. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever been taught how to make a disciple? You all know in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that you've been commanded to make disciples, but you ever been been taught how? Like sat down, walked through, explained, or done it with somebody and have somebody show you how to do it? Or have you been discipled yourself? Have you had someone that sat with you and discipled you and trained you and taught you how to follow Jesus? You know, we know that making disciples and teaching them to obey Jesus is the central mission of the church. So here's the question. Why aren't we learning that stuff? Today we're going to see that Jesus is not only to be believed, not only to be lived, not only to be shared with our words, but he is to be shared with our lives as we are discipling others and being discipled ourselves. Now, by way of brief background, we read a little bit of the background in Acts chapter 16 for the scripture reading through 17 verse 10. Essentially, Thessalonica, this is the the, the place that Paul was writing the letter to, the church there, uh, was a flourishing center of trade and even philosophy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy went there on Paul's second missionary journey, And we saw earlier in our reading that Paul went into the synagogue. He reasoned from the scriptures about Christ, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. And then in Acts 17.4, we saw that some of the Jews were persuaded and a large number of God-fearing Greeks. And these Gentile converts abandoned their pagan past and turned from idols to the living God. Now, in Acts 17.5, we saw that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to flee Thessalonica because of a mob and a riot that occurred because of the Jews. And this persecution led them to Berea, and so Paul was then concerned now about all those new believers that he had just taught about Jesus, and so he sends Timothy back and tells Timothy that he'll catch up with him later. Timothy gives Paul a report that generally the community was doing well, but the church had some concerns about the resurrection, by the way. They actually thought that anybody who died missed Jesus' resurrection. And they were afraid, actually, as well, that 
the, the, um, the, that they thought the, not only the people who d- the died missed it, but apparently that Paul and his team also were being accused of being charlatans. A charlatan is somebody who does their gospel ministry for money. So that was, there was accusations from false teachers to Paul and Timothy that they were just trying to make money. So Paul, he's glad of the good report, but he wants to answer these concerns and make sure they understand his apostolic authority and actually his ability to speak authoritatively about the fact that Jesus was yet to come. And they didn't have to worry. They didn't miss out on Jesus' return. Let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, the first part of verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. The grass withers and the flower, it fades, but the word of our God is forever. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ right now and ask for your Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of the word that anything that I say would be from the scripture alone because it is the very word of God. And I pray that you would allow your people to hear your voice from the scriptures to be convicted where conviction is needed, to be encouraged where encouragement is needed, to be blessed and to find joy where in all things. We praise you and thank you and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word through your Holy Spirit. And most importantly, we pray that you would allow us to worship you, Lord Jesus, through this preaching. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Though it appears that the main point of this chapter here is actually Paul defending his apostleship to the Thessalonians, which it's there, 
We are going to actually to focus on something else that I see sticking out here very clearly, which is Paul making disciples. Why? Paul is a master disciple maker. You see, the reality is that the modern church has had a preoccupancy with making decisions instead of making disciples. The church has focused on this so much that the idea is you need eloquent men to preach to large masses because the point is to make decisions for Christ, not to become disciples. And so the church has focused on this, and this is why I would say probably 90% of you or more have no idea how to make disciples. Or have not even been disciple. Maybe 60 or 50% of you haven't even been discipled truly yourself. Life on life. The reason for this is because if it's all about decisions, then you just get good people that can articulate so that I can draw you into the emotional thing and that whole sort of state so you can make a decision for Christ. But if it's about making disciples, it's a whole different thing. So what I want you to do today is to remember and understand that the church got lost and stuck in a preoccupation with a part of redemption. And it got stuck. So its focus was on a part of redemption, and it got stuck there, and that's why discipleship isn't happening. So, here's the problem. Jesus intended... For every one of you and myself, all the people of God in this room to make disciples. And Jesus showed that following him is more like learning how to be a carpenter than going to a classroom. It's learned by living and by sharing our lives together. Listen, people don't just learn how to follow Jesus by hearing a sermon or attending a Sunday school class or a worship service once or twice a week, but they learn through discipling friendships with a shared life. Today, let's go back to the early church and see how they made disciples. And who better to look at one of the great than one of the greatest disciple makers other than Jesus, right? A little asterisk, Jesus is the master disciple maker. But apart from Jesus, Paul is a master disciple maker. And so I want you to attend with me a master class on making disciples. Actually, I want you to look at a small group in Thessalonica with me. What would we learn? What would we see? What would we hear when we dive into the small group that Paul was leading? Okay, first I want to look at us to look at verses 1 through 6. What we would learn as we visited their little small group here, is that there is a message to get across. And that message is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So first, a message to get across. See, Paul came to Thessalonica and shared the gospel in the synagogue. He explained and proved that Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer and die, to rise from the dead to bring redemption according to the scriptures. So Paul spoke a message of the cross. In fact, in another letter, he says that he only had one message. Anybody know what that message was? The cross of Christ. So that we understand that to be 
the person, the work, the whole work of Jesus Christ. The Christ or Messiah was the one hope of all of God's people. Through Christ, God would establish his kingdom on the earth, but the Jews, they wanted a warrior king to come who would kill the bad guys. And the Messiah, though, was much different. He had to suffer and die. Why? Because the problem isn't simply the world out there. The problem is the world in here, in my heart. You know, listen, you can go and proselytize. You can even force people to come to know Jesus Christ, like say, do this or die, right? But the reality is the problem is still there. The heart hasn't changed. This is why Jesus' kingdom didn't come with weapons. Because the problem was inside. You'd have to kill the inside first. So you can't just force people on the outside. So what does Jesus do? He takes the heart of stone, giving his spirit, and makes it flesh, resurrecting us. And so the old man dies. There is a death. We have been, what does Paul say? Buried with Christ. So Jesus took care through regeneration, through the work of the Holy Spirit, of the problem of the evil on the inside by killing the evil, killing our old man, and raising us up with Jesus Christ. So now we are new in him. That is Paul's message. That's the message of the gospel. And so... Jesus, actually, in order to solve that problem of the evil inside, had to die and suffer the eternal wrath of God upon himself. And because he did that, as Matt was mentioning, because he did that, he was still just. Because it wouldn't be right just to let me escape scot-free because of all the evil I've done. So I don't escape scot-free. Jesus takes it for me. The crime is still paid for. That's what the gospel teaches us, that Jesus paid what we deserved, God's wrath. And so this is truly good news, the gospel. So Paul and his friends proclaimed this to them first in boldness, verses 1 to 2. These guys risked their lives. Can you imagine you get beaten and go to jail in Philippi, and you're like, I'm at it again. I go to the next town, and they go to the next town, and they're in the next town, and there they are. Telling, speaking of Jesus, and people, some people are coming to know Jesus, and a lot of people are getting angry, and then, and then Paul's in there teaching about Jesus, and then a riot happens. And Paul's like, well, I guess I've worn out my welcome here. I guess I'll go to the next town. This is what we've got seen going on. This is the boldness that Paul had. So why did he do it? He had to tell people about Jesus because he was a believer of the message. He actually believed this message he taught to his core. It was worth dying for. It was worth getting stoned. It was worth being lowered from a window in a basket for. It was worth having your head cut off for, for Paul. For Peter, it was worth being hung upside down on a cross for. For the early Christians, it was worth being lit up as a human torch for. Because the message is that you are now a friend of God in Jesus Christ. A friend of the maker of the universe. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. All the evil washed away. But he did this message in verses 3 and 4 in purity and in truth. He answered the call of God and preached only God's message, not a message of his own. You know, when we preach the gospel, we don't preach our message 
that we think that people are going to like. In fact, the gospel, the cross, is actually foolishness to people who don't believe it. Have you ever thought about this message? That the God of the universe took on flesh and came down and died on a cross? Who who thinks that's a good idea? Nobody does. It's foolishness to the Greeks. But it's the, it's the power of God to salvation to those who believe. And that's what Paul held. And so he held to that message, and he doesn't preach his message. He preached God's message no matter the cost. But he did it in verses 5 to 6 for God's glory. He didn't proclaim this message to get, to get at a boy. Great job, nice sermon, wonderful job this week. He didn't even do it for that. Paul didn't proclaim the message so that he could get a bunch of followers on X or Instagram. I'm sure he could have. I am sure Paul, I mean, he didn't have, obviously didn't have the technology back then, but he could have got followers if he wanted lots of them. And he says, yeah, I really don't care. Because it's not about my glory. It's not about me being lifted up. It's about God getting the glory. It's about Christ being lifted up and honored. You see, for Paul, the gospel was central to everything else. The cross of Christ and his resurrection was the power by which all ministry flowed. But it wasn't just a message to him. It was a lifestyle to Paul. It was something to be lived. Why? We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, and part of this message is to be about making disciples. So how can you preach this message if you aren't living it? What do you have to say? if you aren't living it. And if part of the message is to make disciples and you aren't doing it, then what are you doing? So second, our second point from verses 7 to 12, we see there's a life to share. A life to share. Living as a family. In these verses, Paul's message is not just about words. It was a shared life that he and his friends lived out. It was life as a family. It wasn't an assembly line. It wasn't just about producing converts. It was about making followers of Jesus who live out of the reality of the gospel and do so in each other's life, life on life. Notice the deep and rich family language that you see throughout verses 7 to 12. And notice the practical way in which Paul and his friends were engaged with the Thessalonians. They cared about and treated them first in gentleness like a loving mother. They didn't try to use them to make money, to get fame, to be a step stool in their career or ministry. Like I come here and we grow this church and then now it's a couple hundred and now I should go and now I've got enough clout that I can go take a a church for 500. What is that? What is that? Going from place to place to get more money? I mean, okay, I get it. God may call you to a bigger place. Fine. But if that's the heart of a pastor, if that's the heart of our ministers to grow a church, to become bigger so they can have a better career, they've actually missed the entire point, which is Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. So actually, it's opposite of that. God help me if I do that. God have mercy on my soul as a pastor if that ever thought ever crosses my mind. I'm here to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. 
They were like children to him. And Paul and his friends were like a mother. When you think of mothers in general, what do you think of? I hope selfless sacrifice for the good of the child. I hope. Helping, healing, caring, loving, teaching, guiding, helping children grow. The first thing you think of when a mother, I hope you don't think of a lecture hall. If you think of a lecture hall, when you hear the word mother, like we, we, can, we can read through the Bible a little bit and see what the Bible has to say about the way mothers are. Okay? Now, here's the point. Mothers are nurturers. They care. They care. Now, we, they do this in love, friendship, and sacrifice like a dear friend. Now, Paul and his friends really loved and cared for these people. They didn't provide services for them. Like, hey, I'm here for you to give you a funeral for your parents. Or, hey, I'm here to, you know, whatever, come visit you. Or this, this, that, the other thing. They, they did all that. But that wasn't the point. They provided their life, not services. I'm not a, like a machine that you put quarters in and I provide you, you know, I come to your house and talk to you. I care for you and love you and that's why I talk to you. As a, as a mother who cares for their child. That's the point. That's what Paul's talking about. And so Paul and his friends loved the Thessalonians. They were dear to them. They spent time with them. I would assume they laughed and they cried and they spent time together in the short time Paul was there. And through this, the people saw real Christian living in a hostile world. Paul was only there for a short time and then he left, and but he sent Timothy back. But do you, even during this short time, Paul lived as a family with these people. How do you get to be a family in a few months? You ever thought about that? How do you get to be a family in a couple months that Paul was there before he got kicked out by the riot? Well, I will tell you, by living engaged, living life with one another, and pouring your life into one another. That's how Paul did it. What happened is that through this, people saw real Christianity in a real world. Now, Verse 9, they did it in diligence and hard work, spending as much time together as possible like loving siblings. Paul worked during the day, and he poured his nights into them. He cared for them like a loving older sibling. He made sure they had everything they needed. And what was that? The gospel. Their life together was sent, being spent, being saturated with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I know that siblings fight. If you have children, multiple children other than one, and they don't fight, please come talk to me. Maybe you can help me figure out what to do, you know, um, and I can teach others to do the same. I've never seen uh, family siblings that don't fight. Now, but there's a fierceness in their love, isn't there? Oh, you mess with brother or sister, you're messing with me. Even though you might mess with them all the time, you you will mess with those people if they mess with your brother and sister. And so they try to make sure that they are going on the right path, don't they? The older ones are like, listen, you, I know I just did these stupid things, but no, you're not doing that. So Paul is emulating a good sibling. He's saying, I'm a good example. You should follow me. Verse 10, in righteousness toward others as good examples of Christ's likenesses. So listen, their lives lived together were models of how to live as followers of Jesus. They showed by example how to live a righteous life dedicated to God. They showed how to live blamelessly with and before others. Listen, if I look at you and say, I need you to live blamelessly before God, and I go out and just live it up, right? Doing whatever, not following God's laws, and you never see me actually do what I tell you, 
What does it mean? It means nothing. And you're going to look at me and say, well, I guess he doesn't believe what he says. And, and quite frankly, you'd say, why should I? Now, do you know the world looks at us this way? And do you know that there's really no reason to talk to them about the gospel if your life has not been lived to that, lived before them in holiness? Because you've got nothing to say. You can talk all about Jesus all you want, but if your life doesn't demonstrate Jesus, they're just going to look at you and be like, yeah, you, you, you're just with me with a little water on, sprinkled on top. That's, that's, what, that's what you are. This is, why, this is why if you don't live it, you can't speak it. We live, we speak what we live. That's why, if quite frankly, if I was going to say, hey, I'm going to teach you guys how to be a master craftsman. I don't, you guys don't know me that well, but I'm not a master craftsman with anything physical. You ask my wife, anytime I work with my hands, blood. It doesn't matter. And it's not just like, oh, like, but it's just failure at doing the thing I was trying to do. I'm just not good with physical work. In that regard, I could do it. I can get a shovel. I'll hurt myself, but I'll do it. I can do it. And I do do it, right? But the reality is, is if you're not living examples before people, people don't care. See, Paul brought the gospel and taught them to obey all of Jesus' commands, but not simply with words, but by actions. And you want to talk about action, obey Jesus, follow Jesus, and you just came from being beat in a prison. And you're sitting there going out, telling people about Jesus with mobs forming. People are like, I think he believes that. I think he lives that. And so... His life showed how to handle stress, how to handle fear, how to handle persecution, how to handle suffering, how to preach the gospel, how to make disciples, and how to teach others to do the same. You can't go from what he did to Thessalonica and have people not stop and say, hmm, I'm going to listen to your message. But it was not simply example only. If you care for someone, you will make sure that they're growing and overcoming obstacles and difficulties. You comfort them in the trouble and you guide them. At least that is what a good disciple maker will do. And so lastly, in that section of verses, before we get to verses 13 and 14, Paul says like a father in exhortation and encouragement, verses 11 and 12. Paul and his friends encouraged the Thessalonians to follow hard after Christ, to keep Christ at the center. They comforted them through their suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. You, you, you read the thing about Jason, right? You're, you're like, dude, that guy, he got beat. Paul was fine. He must have been like talking to somebody or out somewhere else. And this Jason guy gets drug around getting beat. So Paul needs to encourage him. So Paul implores them to live for the glory of God and not for their own pleasures. And so he was like a father. Encouraging, challenging, comforting, and pushing. Encouraging, challenging, comforting, and pushing. The love and care for them was intense that Paul had. It was like a mother, a sibling, a friend, and a father. Man, in the good ways, that's pretty good if you cared for people like a mom, a dad, a sibling, and a friend. That's the kind of people I want around me. Isn't, it, isn't that what you want around you? People that care for you at that level? 
loving and living a life on shared mission. If there was a master class on discipleship, this is it. A shared life, making disciples. Loving, caring, challenging, like a father, like a mother, like a sister, a brother, like a friend. And all with Christ at the center. Lastly, from verses 13 to 14, we see a beautiful result in the community. Reception. They became imitators of Paul, and it reflected in their lives. They received the gospel as if it came from God himself. When Paul spoke to them, they received the words of Paul that God was giving him as if it was coming from the mouth of God. Why? Because it was. but as what it really is, the Word of God. They trusted in the revelation of Jesus Christ as was found in the Bible and articulated by Paul. They received it. They owned it. It was not an optional message, but to them it was an absolute truth. They also became imitators of Christ's other children who were following hard after God at verse 14a. Powerful things were happen, by the way, when a community of people live as a family of missionary servants on a shared mission to make disciples. A family of missionary servants on a shared mission to make disciples who make disciples. Listen, I know relationships are hard, And it's much easier to preach to a large crowd than it is to get your hands dirty, letting someone cry on your shoulder, letting them see when you are angry, living life with people through the high times and through the low times. But it's worth it. We must do it if we want to make disciples. So I want to end with an application here. There are really two questions you might have. What will it cost and what should we do? I, I, if, I was, if I was sitting there, I would be saying this. Well, tell me what it's going to cost, Pastor James. And tell me how to do it. Because otherwise, it's just words. Okay. Well, Paul and his friends re-engineered their lives around this mission of making disciples, didn't they? I worked all day, and I was with you all night. Their life was a life shared. Acts chapter 2, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they met in each other's homes day after day, breaking bread together, being committed to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the breaking of bread, and to the fellowship. It was a life lived together. It was a re-engineered life. This is why it was so odd to the outside world. Because it wasn't a life focused upon self. It was a life focused upon the communal self which is the church of Christ. And so Paul and his team were working during the day on their business and spent their nights with their friends so that they could help them follow Jesus. That's what it takes. So we should spend our lives walking with people, developing relationships with them, and helping them follow Jesus through the high and low times. And when we do this, we will be doing what Paul was doing, making disciples. And it's what Jesus did too. Three years of Jesus' life were spent on 12 people teaching and guiding them day after day. Was it hard? Yes. Was it frustrating? I bet. If you ever read any of the Gospels, you'll see. Peter, really? 
Will it be for us, frustrating for us too? You betcha. Because people are hard. I mean, you're a person, you know. We have sometimes hard enough time dealing with our own selves, don't we? We look at ourselves and we're like, oh, really? So because it involves people, it involves risk. People are risk. You know that. I think, I can't even remember what the exact quote is, but C.S. Lewis talks about, you want to not get hurt, then just tie your heart up and put it in a little hermetically, he didn't say this, but hermetically sealed container and never ever deal with anybody else. He said, but you know what will happen? Your heart will shrivel up. And you'll, you'll be dead and alone. Risk. People are risky. But we have to open ourselves up to hurt or we can't make disciples. You in this church, if we are on mission, you will be hurt. I can guarantee you that. And that's okay because you have a Savior who binds up your wounds and who is with you through the hurt and through the pain. He is your shepherd who will lead you through the valleys of the shadow of death. If you're working with people, even people who love you, they will hurt you. I promise. Because they're broken and they're sinful. But Jesus will never hurt you. He will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The reality of our broken and fallen world makes it this way. We must be ready to speak the truth of Christ in love when people are not doing and living right. Shared life involves risk, but no risk usually, almost always, yields no reward. Basically, if you want reward, you have to take risk. You aren't going to make disciples without risk. You'll make people who make decisions. So, what's that first? my first question there about what's going to cost? It's going to cost you your life. Jesus says, come, take up your cross and follow me. Come and die. So I'm saying to you, come and die. But oh, in that death, you will be so alive. Never more alive than you've ever been. That's what it's about. Being united to Christ, joining his mission. Second, what what should we do? Well, we've got to model the life of Christ in our community, in our family of missionary servants. We have to live in love with one another as a family. We have to deal with questions like these together. How do we handle adversity? How do we handle loss? How do we handle failure? How do we handle sin? Are we defensive or do we confess our sin to one another? Can we receive forgiveness and move forward because of Christ and all the forgiveness that we have in Him? Do we hold on to hurt? How do we treat our spouses, our children, our friends? To learn these things, we have to live in close relationships. Otherwise, we won't know how to do that stuff. You will not know how to, to work with others in hurt and pain if you don't and aren't with others. You can't do it. And so, for you with children, when they first came, did... Do you get a manual? No? I didn't either. When they became, went into elementary school, did you get a manual? No. What about teenagers? Did you get a manual for them? I didn't. When people told you what to do with them and you tried it, did it work? Maybe a little, probably not. Mostly it didn't. Because people aren't machines. 
You don't put quarters in them, and out comes good behavior. Kids aren't that way. And if they look that way, just wait until they don't get the quarter. Each person is an individual that we must walk and live with and love and work with as they are, as the, where they're at. Every person in this body is in a different place with Jesus, is in a different place with one another. And because of that, each and every one of you needs to be shepherded and dealt with differently. I have to know where you are. You have to know where each other is. And you have to love the person where they're at. No matter how painful their situation they're in, no matter what sin they're in, no matter the struggle that they have, if you're not walking with them the way that they are and caring for them as an individual and not trying to churn out a machine. And that's why it's all about disciple making. It's not a machine. I don't crank disciples out. I live life with you. And we live life together. And we learn Jesus together. We have to encourage and comfort one another as a good father sometimes exhorts, but also gives comfort. We can't tell others what's wrong if we see something, but haven't loved them and walked with them. You know, this. if you don't love them and walk with them and you try to tell them what to do, how, oft, how, how well does that go? It, it's terrible. It's terrible. Nobody in this world likes that. I haven't met a single person that said, yes, please tell me what to do and don't care about me or don't show you care about me. People don't do that. People hear us because we love with them. People hear us because we walk with them. People hear us because we're there with them through the storms of life. We must be with them with their highs, with their lows, and then we can speak into their life and they can speak into ours. It will be mutual, it will be reciprocal, and it will be healing. We all need these kinds of friendships. Coming to church and hearing sermons is not enough. We must learn how to follow Jesus through friendships, through discipleships. How do we start one of these? You can begin with a small group. Being in a group of people who are living as a family of missionary servants, getting to know them, getting to love them, laughing with them, crying with them, eating with them. So then the second part is, do you have a mentor or a peer? Do you have someone who's roughly in the same state or maybe a little farther on you that you can walk and follow Jesus with? We all need that. I have that for me. Do you have that for you? Find these people in small groups or meet with people one-on-one. Find someone you can trust that can help you learn to follow Jesus. It's not enough, though, just to be poured into. That's only half of it. You have to pour out, too, into someone else. We aren't consumers. We don't just get disciples and then boom, we're disciples. This can't happen in you hearing just me preach this week or next week. If you aren't taking this and living and walking it out in your life, in small groups, with the body, the rest of the body, then you aren't pouring into other people and they aren't pouring into you. So do you have someone to pour into? Who are you pouring into? Find people that you want to see come to Jesus. Invest into them. Disciple them. Start praying for them daily that they would be open to the gospel, that you would have opportunities to share Jesus with them. Spend time with with non-believers. Pray for them to become rooted in Christ and teach them to do the same with others when they come to know Christ. Ask yourself, how can I model servanthood so that they can see how to be a servant to others like I am being a servant to others? How can I help them see their gifts in Christ? How can I help Christ be known through them? 
See, all of us need a friend to help us follow Jesus. And all of us need to help someone else follow Jesus. It's that simple. Not by focusing big, but by focusing small. So I want to summarize a sermon for you. A disciple is someone who pours their life into somebody else as they are following Jesus, and they show another person how to follow Jesus as well. You push them, they push you, and you both grow. So find someone that can disciple you and find someone for you to disciple. This is the Great Commission. Go. Therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and I will be with you to the end. Two things. Jesus has all authority, number one. Number two, Jesus will be with you. Afraid of getting hurt? Don't worry. Jesus is right there with you. Was Jesus hurt? Yep. And he did it for the sake. So you and I could be here with him, experiencing his joy forever. Father, oh, would you open up our hearts and our minds to live lives of sacrifice and service for you? Would we pour out? Would we spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel? Would you give us people to pour into us? And would you as well make us people who pour into others? Would you help us to be true disciple makers who live a life of worship and service to you and lead others to do the same. Thank you so much for your word. It is challenging, it is convicting, but it is true. And so we cannot do it, we cannot live it, we cannot walk it out unless you, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, give us the power and energy to do it. Be with us, we pray, as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen.